For the last few Sunday evenings we've been looking at the book of the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament and we come tonight to a further passage from that, from that book. We're in chapter 3 and reading from verse 6 through to verse 12. So if you'd like to turn it up in your Bibles then I would encourage you to follow it. Let us hear the word of God. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. I want to try and persuade you over the next few minutes that this is a quite remarkable passage and a quite remarkable text of huge significance and importance. I actually don't know any other passage either in the Old or New Testament that's quite like this passage and I'll try and persuade you and convince you of that. At its heart is a simple message. But the message is profoundly true and profoundly important for each one of us. And wherever we may be on our Christian lives, whether we're early on on the journey or we're a long way on the journey or we haven't started the journey, Wherever we are on our Christian lives, I want to suggest that this is a passage for us all here tonight. It's a simple message. It's not rocket science. It's not brain surgery to know what is being said. But I do think it's of huge significance. And I think the message is contained in verse 6. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. And I think in that verse we are presented with a very important principle that we so often get the wrong way round. What we often do is say something like this. If God can persuade us that he exists, if God can somehow convince us that he's a God of love, a personal God, and he's shown himself to us personally in Jesus Christ, and all the lovely saving work and the glorious ministry of Jesus Christ, if God can somehow persuade us of the truth of that, okay, then we'll follow. We'll become Christians, and we'll go the Christian way. That's the way round we put it. But that's our mistake. That's our mistake. Return to me, and I will return to you. That's actually the way round that it is. So let me start with three very simple little illustrations to kind of highlight this principle. The first is this. Some years ago I was visiting an elderly couple in Scotland. They lived in a little house and I was 
visiting them and in the afternoon um, when I went to call on them I was drawn into their sitting room and on the wall of the sitting room was a text and the text said this act as if I were and you will find that I am it's quite a strange text I don't think it's a biblical text I've not seen it before nor since the last two words I am might be the divine name so this might well be a Christian text but it did seem to me to contain this truth act as if I were and you will find that I am second of illustration a good number of years ago when I was in business I was sent by my company to a youth leaders conference I remember being quite flattered because I was 28 at the time and I thought that's pretty good if they think I'm still young now I realise that actually 28 is very young but however I was sent on this conference and um, it was a big conference with a lot of people from various walks of life from industry from the professions from law medicine from the uh, civil service from the churches and it lasted three or four days it was quite a big conference and I met there a young Jewish rabbi about ages with myself and he had a synagogue in northern London North London and I remember him saying it and I remember him saying it very clearly that one of the problems he had was when he was dealing with young people young Jewish people and he was trying to teach them about the Jewish faith and draw them into the life of the synagogue they would say to him Rabbi if you can prove what you're saying is true then we'll follow you and he was saying to them no that's the wrong way round you've got to make a commitment first and then you'll find the truth of it Third story, third little illustration. Her mother's cooked a very nice meal for her little girl or boy, whatever it is. A little child at the table sets the plate in front of the child and says, I'm sure you're going to enjoy that. And the child says, I'm not going to eat it. And the mother says, well, why? And the child says, I don't like it. And the mother says, well, why don't you like it? And the child says, I've never had it before. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Each of these three little illustrations seems to me to refer to this central principle here. Return to me, and I will return to you. That is the sequence, and we so often, we so often get it the wrong way round. But if we get it the right way round, then blessings upon blessings will flow for us. We will know the joy and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be a blessing to others, and we will be empowered to be a blessing to others, and equipped to serve them if we get it the right way round. Let me just spend a minute or two recapping on what we've been looking at in Malachi so far. Malachi is a word which means messenger, whether it's the name of the prophet or simply a description of the prophet, we don't know. We really know very little about him, except he was what is called a minor prophet. Not minor because it's less significant or less important in any way, but simply one of the shorter prophets, much shorter than Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. And he's the last of the prophets. His book comes right at the end of the Old Testament. And scholars are pretty well agreed that he exercised his ministry about 420, 430 BC and in Jerusalem. And if you've been here on past Sunday evenings and you've uh, read uh, the earlier part of uh, the prophecy, you'll know it's a word of condemnation. It's a word of condemnation on the sin of the people, on human sinfulness. It's a word of judgment 
but it's not without hope. And it does contain pointers to the coming of a saviour, to the coming of Jesus Christ as saviour and Lord. The prophet still acknowledges that God loves his people. But they have sinned, and they are under condemnation. And it's as serious as could be. Now, you'll remember the history. The people have been in exile following the fall of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah in 587 BC. And they spend about 70 years in Babylon. And then at the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, they're restored to the promised land. They come back to occupy the land. They come back to occupy Jerusalem. The temple is rebuilt. And they resume their lives. But life is hard. Life is very hard and it doesn't seem to go very well and they wonder where God is. There's a series of poor harvests. The wine fails. Wine that's supposed to make glad the heart of man and yet it fails. There are pests in the fields and they become discouraged and disappointed and depressed and despairing. Where is God? Where are his blessings? They don't know joy Religion itself, worship, is affected and corrupted. They worship, but it's half-hearted. It's nominal. They go through the motions. It's just a ritual. You could say, they go to church, they say their prayers, they read their Bible, they give their money, they have fellowship together, but it's just a ritual. It's empty. It's dead religion. Dead religion. And that's what Malachi condemns. And there are a number of things that the people have been doing which he condemns, and we've seen these over the past, uh, the past few weeks, for instance. The first thing that he condemns is blemished sacrifices. If you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 8, When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? The temple sacrifices were clearly required to be perfect. The animal, the bird, whatever was brought for sacrifice was to be without blemish, and without spot. But clearly, corruption had come in. Perhaps these were animals that you couldn't even sell. And they were thought good enough for the service and the offering of God. That was one criticism. A second criticism, unfaithful priests. Priests who become just nominal in their teaching and in their ministry. These were the religious leaders. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So the leadership, the religious leadership, has let the people down. I was reminded of this Wonderful passage in Micah at this point. Let me read it to you. It will be familiar to some of you. Makes the same point. 
about the religious leadership. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So blemished sacrifices, unfaithful priests and the third point of criticism and judgment was the people themselves who had become unfaithful and adulterous. They had married foreign women And we know of instances where that was done in the Old Testament without condemnation, but clearly in this case, with the foreign women, came the foreign gods and idolatry. And they were condemned for that. And somehow the ideal of marriage was undermined because divorce became widespread. Chapter 2, verse 11. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary that the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and wail because you no longer pay attention to your offerings, or accept them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit, and they are his? And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit, and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord. So blemished sacrifices, unfaithful priests, and the people themselves unfaithful and adulterous. And the prophet condemns them all. And so to our text tonight, a fourth instance for condemnation. The withholding of tithes and offerings. So serious that God himself uses the word robbery. A word in the Hebrew that conveys violence. The people are committing a violent act with him in robbing him of what was justly his in the tithes and the offerings. From chapter 3 verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you. Because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. You see the principle. Return first, and then find the blessings of God. Return to me, And I will return to you. Act as if I were. And you will find 
that I am. Now the tithes and the offerings were very important. The tithe, which was a tenth of income and a tenth of of produce, was required by the temple for the running of the temple, the running of the religious offices, required to support the priests and the Levites. Not just that, but as we see in one or two parts of the ancient law, the tithes were also used as a welfare payment to those who were destitute and in need, the, the poor, the widow, the orphan. They were very, very important. But they were being withheld. And this was another instance of the corruption of the sinfulness of the people. Interestingly, and we could talk about this afterwards, I know that it's a major principle in the Old Testament, but I don't find the principle of of the tithe uh, very clear in the New Testament. And I think that's possibly a a point of of interest. Let me tell you a funny story. There was a minister who used to gather in his offerings every Sunday, and he went into the vestry and he put the offerings on the table, and then he would throw the offerings up in the air, and they would fall back down on the table. And for a number of weeks, people felt rather embarrassed about asking him about this. But finally, um, they couldn't um, have their curiosity unsatisfied. So they said, Minister, why why are you doing this? You you throw the money up in the air and it lands back down on the table. What's the purpose behind this? And he said, ah, you see, I'm giving the offering to God and he's keeping what he wants. And then the rest is what we would use for ourselves. I'm going to say a bit more about money later, actually, because money comes into this passage. A tithe is very often money. And here the tithe was being withheld. They would of course offer something. There would be an element of giving. It would be pretty nominal. They were going through the motions. Their religion was pretty dead. But that's something for us to think about today. Where would we put ourselves on the, on the tithing scale about our offerings our financial support for the work of the church. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. That's the way round. If we want blessings, if we want blessings in abundance, we're not to deny God what is rightly his. And look what God says. He says, test me. Test me in this. I have a sense here, you know, that There's a real confrontation with the people and God. And through the the prophet, God is getting annoyed. He's getting angry. Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into my house. Test me in this. Test me in this. Try me out. Test to see if my promises are true. Test me to see if my word is true. It's a remarkable passage. But of course the people don't. And so often we don't. We wait till it's proved to us. We wait till we're convinced. And if we wait on that basis, we will wait forever. Ties were often money. Not always, but often. And money is an extraordinary measure of our sincerity and our faithfulness, our love, if you, if you like. How we spend our money really says more about us, perhaps, than anything else. If you want to know what your priorities are, then look at the way you spend your money. I remember many years ago hearing about 
famous uh, man in Scotland, John Lang, who founded a big construction and building business. He was a devout Christian and he tithed. He gave a tenth of his income to the church. And he prospered and became more wealthy and then he gave 20%. And I was told by the end of his life, when he was extremely wealthy, he was giving away 90%. An interesting story. I wonder what, uh, what we would give. I wonder how we would uh, place a proportion of what we give in the right kind of priority. What's the right amount for us? Can I suggest four principles which lie behind or should lie behind our giving of money to the church? You'll find all these in 2 Corinthians if you want to look them up. And the first is priority. What we give to the church, I think, should be the very first thing that we give should come before our mortgage payment, before our um, council tax, before the utility bills, food, shelter, clothing. It comes first. I remember a lovely lady in uh, my church in Edinburgh many years ago, elderly lady, very fine Christian lady that she was, Mrs. Bakey. In those days it was all very traditional. I wouldn't have dared call her by her Christian name, so she was always Mrs. Bakey. And I remember visiting her and she told me all she had was her old age pension. That was all she had. That was her only income. But she said to me, and I'm sure she was being quite sincere, the first thing I do is to take money and I put it on in that pot in the mantelpiece. And that's for the church. When I go to the post office on a Thursday, that's where my first lot of money goes. Priority. The first principle is priority. The second principle, proportion. We are to put aside a proportion, and perhaps we are the only ones who can say what that proportion might be, whether it's a tithe or more or less. But it's to be a proportion. A priority, a proportion. The third principle is that it should be regular, not casual. So many people's giving is casual, and they feel they're quite generous when they, when they give, but they give infrequently, or perhaps rarely, and they should give regularly. A priority, a proportion, and regularly. And then the fourth principle, we should give cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver, says Paul. And I think those four principles are very helpful to us, because each of us faces the responsibility and the duty of how we spend our money and how we support our church. And it's a true measure of our faithfulness. And I think if you think about it, you'll see that. And this is an astonishing text. Return to me, and I will return to you. Test me in this. Test me. Try me out. See if I'm true to my word. See if my promise is good. You test me. You try me. And then I'll show you what I can do. I'll show you the blessings that I will pour out upon you. I don't know what condition you're in here tonight. As I said at the start, I don't know what point you're at on a Christian journey, if you've even started the journey, or whether having gone on the journey you've retreated and then started again. We're all at different points, but I really do believe this passage speaks to each one of us here tonight. We're not just to listen to the promises of God. We're not just to hear the word of God. We're to act on it. We're to try it out. To have faith. To have trust. To make a commitment. To believe. 
And then we will find what God will give to us. I want to draw near to the end. I said earlier that Malachi has a particular passage that points forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, one of the great messianic prophecies in chapter 3. And my friends, we have a gospel. We know Jesus. We know that Jesus came. We know what he said. We know what he did. We know his sacrifice. We know his sacrifice for sin. We know how serious sin is and that only he can deal with it for us. We know all that. That's the gospel. It's the heart of our faith. It's what's preached week in, week out. But do we believe it? Do you believe it? you really believe it? Are you committed to it? Or do you have doubts? Are you waiting for it to be proved to you in some way? Are you waiting for some kind of experience that will finally convince you that God in Christ loves us and loves each one of us? But I think that's the wrong way round. We've got to start by taking the step of faith, trusting, believing, following Jesus. Such simple words that Jesus says to us, follow me. Someone once said, I remember all the theological books that have been written and all the theological papers that have been read and all the sermons that have been um, preached. And what did Jesus say? Very simple. Follow me. Follow me. And perhaps someone here tonight who particularly needs to hear the words of Jesus. Follow me. Return to me. And I will return to you. Try me. Test me. See if I'm as good as my word. Act as if I were. And you will find that I am. And all the nations of the world will call us blessed. Jesus said, I am come that they may have life and have it to the full. Full, rich, complete life in Christ. A life of joy. A life of delight. A rich and wonderful life. That's what's on offer to us, individually, as a church, as a people. And through us, it's offered to our world. And our world stands in such need. And let me close with this. Quotation from G.K. Chesterton. Very, very challenging. Listen carefully. It's not that the Christian faith has been tried and been found wanting. It's been found difficult and not even tried. Amen. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage with its wonderful message to us. It's very challenging. It's very discomforting. And yet it's full of such glorious promise. Give us the strength to take that step of faith. To believe. To trust you. To trust your word. To be open to your spirit that we might find, each one of us, and as a church, and as a people, we might find that wonderful generosity as you pour out your blessings upon us. And that we might, in Christ, become a blessing to all the nations of the world. 
And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.